Welcome to the Secret Nerd Podcast, where we think everyone should play tabletop RPGs and give you some reasons why. With me today, I am super excited. Um, the transplaner train keeps on rolling. Uh, with me today, I have another guest from the show. Yeah, a streamer, speedrunner. Um, yeah, just super excited to talk to her. So, yeah, if you would like to introduce yourself. Hi there, everybody. I'm uh, Erica Fladeland, uh, she, her pronouns, and uh, I play Vinak Scherzo for Transplaner RPG. Yes, among a bunch of other things that we'll get into. But yeah, so where I always like to get started is just like, how did you get into nerd stuff in general? Well, I, you know, I grew up in a really tiny rural town in North Dakota. And uh, my friends that I gathered there, we just sort of, we always sort of played video games. That was kind of our, I remember meeting my best friend I eventually made in that small town when I moved there. And we just started playing RPG video games. I remember he was playing like Wild Arms 2, uh, Lunar 2, the Silver Star Moon or whatever. Uh, and then he got uh, Final Fantasy 7. And that was the video game that like changed my life where it's like all of a sudden there's a story narrative in this game that like yeah. blew me out of the water. And I was so emotionally invested in these characters. And then like that for me is like was in a weird way that's the changing point of my relationship to video games and everything. Uh, and that was just kind of it. Just whatever we could get access to in the small little town in the middle of nowhere in the late nineties and early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of people really loved the final fantasy series. Do you feel like, because this is just like me looking at it from the outside in, I, I played a little bit of final fantasy seven, but I never like got into it the way a lot of people get into it. But it seems to me outside looking in that it sort of peaked at seven. Do you feel like there's a better, Final Fantasy game than seven? It really depends. It's so funny. One of my best friends today uh, is kind of like a Final Fantasy guru. She talks about like all the time she plays the games a lot. Yeah. Uh, and really, I, I don't know if it comes down to what is the best Final Fantasy game as much as what are you looking for from your game because yeah. each one is so incredibly different in narrative mm -hmm. uh, structure and, and gameplay mechanics. Uh, you know, there's some people who really love, say, 10 or 9 or something. They prefer the older retro ones, the, the yeah. you know, the 8 pixel, 16 pixel. Um, so it really just depends. For me, uh, 7 does feel like uh, the best in terms of it's my favorite story being told out of mm -hmm. all of them. But it's obviously it's not like the best graphically or the best, yeah. you know, you it's it's got its flaws so it's yeah. just i i like to look at more like what are you looking for from the series and then you can point someone to the right direction of what game might be best for them yeah so maybe like m the most iconic might be more it definitely changed the game for final fantasy like there's definitely pre final fantasy 7 and post final fantasy 7 um and then you can get into like post Sagaguchi and like who was the founder of Final Fantasy games and so mm. on and so forth. Like once he left, the series became a very different uh, entity. So, um, but seven will I, I I 
couldn't think of another game in the series that is more um, of a turning point in the entire series for sure. It it literally brought the company to a to a new level and mm-hmm. allowed them to do a lot more different things because of it. So yeah, well yeah for sure. I mean even like as a kid too, right? Because we didn't really. You know, and we're here about like one, two, three, four, five, and six. So it's just like, okay, well, what? It's seven, but like, where's the other ones? And um, that's what I thought, at least when I was a kid. I was like, I don't understand. How do we get? How did we get here? Where did this happen? Right, totally. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> seven did seem for, for for me especially like seven came out of nowhere because yeah. I I also hadn't heard of the first six of them yeah. until <laughs> yeah. I went back later and kind of found a couple of the series of the did, uh, installments. Did they? Did the first six even get released in the U.S.? Uh, it's kind of convoluted and messy how it all went about. Um, but they, I mean, they did, but yeah, it was like they were labeled differently and then Mm. they made Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, which was the company trying to make a dumb, no, hold on, can I rephrase that? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, they tried to make a watered down version of the game so that it was easier for the U.S. population to understand all Mm. these mechanics and such. Um, So Mystic Quest is kind of an outlier as well. It's not really in, I mean, none of the games are really connected, but it's kind of a, this weird outlier in the uh, in the series uh, that most people like frown upon. Although I actually enjoyed that game a lot as a kid. I played it. So Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's cool. Yeah. And then so, I mean, what do you think was like the next big RPG for you after Final Fantasy? You know, um, I think some of those other ones... That I actually played right before it, like Lunar, um, Wild Arms were really good for me. I also, Final Fantasy Tactics is a game that I think is underrated. Be- and again, I, this is going to be a theme with me, I feel like, because <laughs> the narrative of Final Fantasy Tactics is so good. If you're into like political intrigue and mm-hmm. um, military uh, sort of posturing, um, Final Fantasy Tactics. Texas. Uh, Final <laughs> Fantasy Tactics is such a wonderful, uh, more complicated plot than a lot of the games. And yeah. uh, really, you know, for me, is actually probably my second favorite in the entire series. And then after that, I feel like I went a long time without a video game that spoke to me in quite the same way, actually. Um, I'm struggling to even remember. I feel like after those games and my friendships, we kind of grew into like, we started playing Magic the Gathering more and then our video game content was more, you know, the 64 came out. So it was like GoldenEye, Perfect Dark, all these Nintendo 64 games that really didn't matter what the plot was. You were just running around fighting each other and doing stuff. Perfect Uh, Dark was incredible. Yeah, I think it's a much better game than than GoldenEye, but GoldenEye oh, yeah. gets all the glory. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 100%. Like, I think the story's better. Um, the the protagonist is better. Um, I loved the fact, like, for us, because, you know, this is pre-internet uh, connections, you know, and, and playing games online with people. Like, in GoldenEye, I was like, oh, yeah, you can 4v4, or I, maybe you could do 8 uh or, or sorry, yeah, four people, or maybe you could do eight people total. I can't remember if like you could connect two Nintendo 64s together in the same house. I can't remember. But for sure, on Perfect Dark, you could put bots into the um, into the game. And so you could play four friends versus eight bots. And that was like, for us, we'd stay up literally all night playing that game. Yeah, and the thing with, I, I still remember to this day, there was a, 
Perfect Dark also had these um, co-op scenarios. Like you couldn't really do. Yes. Um, you couldn't do story mode beyond two people, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you could do these co-op scenarios where I I just remember this one because it. I don't know if we ever beat it. It was called King of the Hill, mm-hmm. and it was this little the level where all the bots were these little Martian creatures that were really <laughs> yeah. short. So it was like. You know, the equivalent in Golden Eye would be like, it'd be like an army of odd jobs that you're facing. So yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> you always have to aim down to shoot when they're close to you. And, yeah. But they're super fast too. I remember there's the speed of these little aliens are like boosted. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're trying to hold a zone long enough to get the point for it. And, yeah. uh, but these things would kill you so fast. So mm-hmm. It's like impossible. And I, we spent, oh, just months trying to beat that particular scenario. And I don't know if we ever did, actually, yeah. now that I think about it. Um, but that's what I loved about Perfect Dark. Yeah, there's just it had a lot more opportunities for co-op and doing more creative things with co-op. Yeah, they. I mean, I think you and you had like an alien weapon that was like an alien sniper rifle that could shoot through the walls, so you could like track people through the building. Um, yeah, that game was amazing. I still like can remember like a lot of the parts of the map of what was it it was it called Felicity or Facility I can remember as a kid I think I just screwed it up all the time but either way like that game was pretty iconic um but yeah the those were a lot of fun I think it's like especially when you have friends it's nice to play those games and like the Mario Party games things like that because there were some amazing RPGs that came out for the 64 but also one person plays it and then you have to be like okay who in the group is going to play most likely the person who owns the game. And everybody else gets to just watch them. Yeah. I mean, that was me and my best friend. It was like, literally, we would just take turns. Yeah. He he was the one who generally owned whatever console we were using. But we would, uh, you know, when the first time playing Final Fantasy VII was actually me watching him play. But I was like right there the whole time. Yeah. And then we did, uh, <laughs> this is so funny to think about now. Um, our senior year of high school, for Christmas break, the week leading up to New Year's Eve, like right after Christmas, we... We got in my basement, we we like bunkered down, and we bought a whole bunch of blank VHS tapes, and we recorded our, an entire playthrough of us playing Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. And we actually did like swap who was actually holding the controller for that. And then our freshman year of college for Christmas, we watched the tapes. We like <laughs> we were able to fast forward through like the boring just running through uh, you know the map, but. Yeah, it was so funny to me that we actually <laughs> recorded it instead of just playing it again our freshman year of college. No, we had to watch ourselves playing it. That's so good. Yeah, that's you, you were you were made to stream is basically is basically how that works. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I'm just realizing is like that was like the birth of like my interest in things like Twitch TV and stuff like that. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I think you, now that we're talking about this, like it, you kind of made me think about that fact, like. I remember when Twitch started taking off and people were like, wait, you're watching people play video games. Um, and it was so weird for a lot of people. And even myself, I was like, I don't really know. Like, I don't really want to watch a stranger play a video game for the most part. But I would watch videos sometimes of like, if I wanted to, if I really wanted to play a game, but didn't have a chance, or I wanted to see the gameplay of a game, I would watch, uh, you generally on YouTube, because I just avoid Twitch for so long, but I would watch like somebody play the game on YouTube. And then be like, oh, okay, yeah, this is cool. And then kind of see like how they're doing it. Um, But I think like we were talking about, like there's so many of us that grew up watching our friends play that it just kind of became a natural progression whenever, you know, technology caught up to the idea of like, you can actually do this and, and create entertainment for people. Yeah. I mean, I got onto Twitch. I'd never heard of it uh, before, but a few years back, 
my best friend, that one that I started like played Final Fantasy Seven with, he got on a Twitch and because he started speed running um, X Men Two for the Sega Genesis, hmm. and he's just like, hey, like I'm gonna be broadcasting myself working on getting this world record for speed running this game, like create an account, it's free, you can just follow me and stuff. And for long, for like the first year, that's all I watched was just him and like one other channel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I had no interest in, in finding other channels, watching yeah. other streamers. It just, I was hanging out with my best friend uh, on Twitch while he, while he played video games and, uh, you know, and then eventually I just remember one night he raided me to, for those of you who don't know, like at the end of a stream, you can raid it, basically take your audience to some other channel. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's a way to pass pass viewership from one channel to another in a nice, easy way. And uh, he raided this content creator and I was just like blown away. She, she was she had a much larger audience. She had like over 100 people on her audience, but she was keeping up a chat and she was very cordial. And like she like blew my mind that um I, cause I hadn't experienced a big community on Twitch, like that, that feeling of like, Oh, here's a community that number one, I felt safe as a trans woman. I was pretty new coming out at the time. I was still early in my transition mm-hmm. and, um, just, I felt safe in her community to be able to like, Hey, I'm a trans woman. And I, and it was fun and exciting. And that is when like the hooks almost a year later on Twitch, like really got into me. And like, I was also like, huh, this streaming business kind of seems like fun now that like, I see the possibilities of of community building mm-hmm. and entertainment value and all that stuff. And then COVID hit, which even made it even more like, okay, well I'm a performer and COVID is like shutting down my performative outlets. Mm-hmm. Here's a way that maybe I can still be creative and, and perform for people yeah. um, in a way that's safe in a COVID world. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's, um, that's cool that you're able to find that back then. I know a lot of times, Twitch doesn't always feel like the safest place. Um, but I think that there still are avenues. Like certainly anytime that I pop into like Transplaner's chat, it's always like just love, you know what I mean? And everybody's uh, having a great time. Um, and I know that there are some tools now to help kind of mitigate people coming in and being uh, pieces of shit. But um, yeah, that's really cool that that you were able to kind of find that and latch onto that. Was was the person was the streamer that you were watching was she also a trans woman or just just her being a woman kind of made it feel safer for you? Yeah, uh, she's cis. Uh, mm-hmm. She's like, she's pansexual. Um, yeah. Although ironically, at the time she wasn't out yet, but she came out eventually. Um, yeah. It wasn't that. Basically, her channel was just it felt safe. She was very adamant that her channels safe for all people Mm -hmm. uh she didn't take any type of crap that was homophobic transphobic racist or anything like that yeah um she's biracial and that's like she talks about what it's like being a biracial cis woman on the internet yeah and you know for sure how difficult that can be um so it just felt immediately so safe and it's like that was the type of community i wanted to build yeah absolutely that's really cool so you know when you when you decided to join streaming like what was the first thing that you that you were streaming i was pretty much predominantly and only a art streamer for the first six months okay all i did was like boot up my stream because i was still working full-time so i you know i'd work eight yeah. hours and i'd come home eat and then hop online and just like draw for people and be like just chill and chatting um, mm-hmm. and then after about six months 
I didn't really see a lot of growth from it. I was like kind of still streaming to like one or two people at best. Mm -hmm. Um, but I participated in a charity fundraiser called the game on the end lupus. I did the very first year was like, uh, two or three months into my streaming career. And I was, and I, but I, uh, because this content creator names Coco confession, she has lupus and she started this fundraising drive every May called the game on the end lupus, which I've done all three years now. Um, and just because of her and everything she sort of represented to me, I wanted to partake. And that was my first real taste of like what it could really be like as a streamer, because uh, I was getting raided by all these much larger streamers at the end of the night. Cause my very first stream for that was a 24 hour stream. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I was getting hundreds of people in my chat suddenly for the first time ever. And I was, handling it fine like i was actually doing a really good job and i just remember after that weekend not only did i raise like almost a thousand dollars for my first charity ever which i felt felt great about yeah but i also was able to handle these larger audiences and 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 all that came with that and i was like i remember after that weekend thinking you know what this is what i want to do i really love this um i still did art for a while and then it was after after having that charity, having it go so well, and then dropping back down to like where I was at beforehand in terms of viewership, I was like, something's got to change. Like, yeah, I, I'm getting to the point in streaming where I'm no longer wanting to do it casually. I want to do it as like a career choice. So what do I have to do? So I changed up my content. I became a horror streamer because I hate horror things. <laughs> and people love to watch people who hate horror play horror games yeah and uh i immediately saw just a boost in everything in viewership in in revenue and everything and uh it was but it was super fun and i eventually kind of got good with video games where it was like no longer they didn't scare me as much which so like that kind of like that whole excitement of like oh it's fun to watch erica get jump scared well like now i'm not getting jump scared as much because i'm getting used to it yeah there's there's something about video games unlike a horror movie where Things are scary, yes, but you have to be the person to move your character forward. Like, you can't just run away. There's nowhere to run away to. Like, yeah. If you want to yeah. finish the video game, you got to move forward, which yeah. I think in a weird way helped me get over a lot of my, like, hatred of horror. Like, actually, I, I actually enjoy horror movies more than I did before then. So yeah. uh, it was a strange – and now my content is much more diverse, and uh, it's been evolving for – uh, I've been streaming for two and a half years, which is wild to think about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a much, and then I got into speed running a horror game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Gosh, that's so fun. I, I, I did my first stream, um, last week as of this recording and I did an art stream too, and it was nerve wracking and, um, and interesting just to kind of like, yeah, I mean, it was like six people in there. Um, all of like, all of whom were my friends, um, which was, which was cool just, you know, to have them in there, but it was still like getting used to like talking to yourself when people aren't chatting. And then I was like struggling to like draw what I was trying to draw. So then that was like an awkward, like, let me just fuck around with this for a while. Um, so yeah, it is, it is, it is fun, but it's also, it's also its own weird experience too, um, (laughs) to get into (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's for me, it's interesting because I like I have actually like I went to college for theater. I yeah. I went to clown school. I I've done a lot of performative work. And so um, 
there's an element of it that like no matter what's happening i'll feel comfortable like yeah. i know how to just be present in front of a large group of people or a small group of people mm -hmm. um but you know there also are a lot of anxieties not even related to the actual act of streaming whatever you're streaming but just you know being suspicious of new people in the audience who might be there with ill intentions mm -hmm. or you know there gets to be especially in the streaming world a lot of behind the scenes drama between other streamers or people in different communities there gets to be a lot of anxiety that's nothing to do with the actual act of streaming itself that makes yeah. you you know that's where the real stress of the job actually comes in really yeah yeah i mean so you you kind of touched on it but like um the performative stuff uh obviously a lot of it like you said was pre-covid um but i know from having C on the show that that's where you met them. Like, let's talk about that a little bit. What, yeah. So, so what is it that kind of got you into performance and what was that experience like that journey, like to get, like to go through some of that stuff and do clown school and things like that? Yeah. I got into theater as a teenager only because my older sister did musicals and plays and stuff. And yeah. I saw all the attention it brought her and I was like, I want, I, I want to do that. I can do that. <laughs> um, and also, I was an extremely shy child as a kid. <clears throat> yeah. uh, I didn't like to talk much. I kind of stuttered quite a bit, actually. And doing theater in high school, once I got old enough to like audition for plays, you know, my first few roles were like just background in musicals. You know, I played like five or six characters. Yeah. I think my first musical was Cinderella, and I was like, I was a mouse. I was a security guard in the palace i would you know so on and so forth so many different titles mm -hmm. and then i remember my very first role where i had a speaking role with some like one act little comedy play that was supposed to be set in medieval times and i was cast as the beggar whose only role really is to just walk across the stage with a giant sign that sets up like what the time and place of, of the scene is and then walk off yeah. And then the beggar gets involved in the very last scene and like gets integrated in the show. But it was like maybe four or five lines in the whole show. But my director at the time was like, when you cross the stage with these signs, you can say and do whatever you want. <laughs> and I just, I took that challenge and I ran with it. Um, and my immediately my beginning chops as like a physical comedian performer just really went off the charts. I was like, can I break the the other actors who are on stage frozen right now uh, while I just do this cross? Uh, you know, I was yelling things. I can't even remember what the things I yelled at anymore. I mean, that was like 24 years ago. Yeah. But I would just yell the most ridiculous things, begging for change or whatever. Um or like I would do a prat fall and like fall my flat on my face. Um, and at near the end, when the beggar gets integrated, I, I sneak into the audience and sit in the front row. And then they like, they're looking for a contestant on their medieval game show and yeah. they call the beggar up. And so I ran to the show instead of using the steps in the middle of the stage, I just ran up and like tried to leap onto the stage and would clearly like just nail the front of the stage and bounce <laughs> off it. And, uh, no one in the in, in the cast realized I was doing that for like the first three times I did it, and then yeah. like one of the last rehearsals before we opened, they they realized what I was doing and they could not keep their stuff together the entire time, <laughs> and it was hilarious. And for the first time, I felt like ah yes, like 
validation, instant validation. Uh, yeah. You know, people laughed and applauded and told me I did a good job. And I was just like, that part got to be very um, addictive for me at first. Yeah. And as I grew into a performer and I went to college, I got this really, really small scholarship to declare my theater major uh, because I was going to go into mathematics. <laughs> I really loved mathematics and I was going to study math. But uh, my my senior year, I did this workshop at the at the university and they're like, hey, if you declare your theater major instead, uh, we will give you a scholarship. It was like five hundred dollars. So it was like a textbook. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was like, OK. And I remember after like three weeks of the introductory, um, three weeks of the introductory acting class, I was hooked. I was like, this is it. Because my, my school didn't have like any type of acting classes. It was literally acting classes in that high school was uh, hit your mark. Don't, don't uh, have dancey feet. Keep your feet solid where they are. Yeah. Speak so that your grandma in the back of the audience can understand you and smile and have big energy that was that was it yeah so learning about like acting from a more uh intellectual and analytical space of like here's how you read a script here's how you break down what your character's trying to do here's how you actually play that here's how you listen to other people and and building all these foundational skills was uh just mind-blowing and studying directing and playwriting and and the craft of theater, whether it's lights, uh, set building and costumes, it just, I, I, I loved it. It was something that was amazing. I, I actually had my first theater gig at 16, my first professional one. Mm -hmm. uh, my band teacher got me a gig playing the bass guitar for a regional theater, one of the largest in North Dakota, actually, uh, playing bass for West Side Story, which is one of the more difficult scores to play. And I was... Yeah. I was 16 amongst people who were like in their late 20s. A lot of them were like music graduates and some of them even getting their masters in music. So I was like playing with really, really talented musicians. And I was just like this small town kid playing my bass. And yeah. I was keeping up with them musically. But I was also seeing what these other the performers were doing, the dancers, the actors and all this type of stuff. I was like, you know, I eventually after doing a number of gigs in the in the in the pit orchestra i got a chorus role ensemble and mm -hmm. then i started getting speaking parts in this regional theater and like built my way up that way in this theater i've done like seven or eight shows with that theater company over the years which is every time is uh an adventure because it's <laughs> usually a bunch of 20 year olds in the middle of nowhere north dakota uh with a lot of free time which meant we probably got ourselves into a lot of trouble yeah <laughs> um, you know but then actually the 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 turn to clown school was that i almost quit theater my junior year of college um the the head of the bfa program the the acting program for whatever reason she and i did not see eye to eye and it, she never really supported me like she supported other people in my BFA class. My BFA class was like five people I graduated yeah. with. So, we, you know, it's small, intimate. You're, you're acting with the same five people for four years, uh, which can be grueling. Like, you know, you get yeah. to know each other's little things that you do and you and it's grueling. And then I have this teacher who just kind of continuously. uh is negative about me and my abilities 
um despite my classmates being like why are you picking on her like yeah like i literally uh, my last semester had had one of my classmates be like there was absolutely nothing wrong with what she just did why why do you have it out for her and it led to this huge fight um so i almost gave up theater my junior year and it was only a couple of professors who uh i auditioned for a show and i did so bad it was one of my worst auditions ever and I ran into the director, though, who's actually one of my favorite directors. He cast me in my first collegiate play, uh, which was a beautiful, wonderful show. And we actually won a lot of awards for it, for our work as both an ensemble and him as a director. And then uh, we met in a hallway in the theater department late at night. I was really down and just feeling like, you know what, I'm done with theater. And he's like, do you even want to keep doing this? I was like, I think so, but I just feel like I shouldn't be. And he's like, look, if you want to do it, you're in the show. If you don't want to do it, I get it. And I don't want to like force you to do anything you don't want to do. Yeah. So I was like, no, I want to do it. And he cast me not in like a huge part or anything, but it was a, it was a part, it was a Shakespeare play. And I had, I started the show, me and another character had literally like 10 pages of monologues. Like we just monologued back and forth for 10 pages. It was not many people could do that. That section of that play, uh, very well because it was very difficult very heightened language but it also was setting up the entire scenario of the entire play like it's important to do well and do in a way that people pay attention to what you're saying yeah um but as part of that production because it was a comedy he he and the person in charge of movement in the program brought in this actor director playwright who had his own theater company his name was matt chapman uh he had this company under the table and he did this physical comedy workshop with us. And it was for the first time in like my, my three and a half years where suddenly acting was fun again. Mm-hmm. Uh, he brought this joy and excitement and delight in what we were doing. And it was, it was just so much joy in it. And I just remember like, and I remember he showed us clips of his theater company's work and it was like the most mind blowing thing. I'd never seen theater like it. It was physical and acrobatic and breakneck comedy followed by like super just poetic uh beautiful gorgeous poetry that these characters are saying to each other and i was just like whatever that is i don't know what that is i haven't (laughs) been exposed to theater but that that is what i want to be doing and creating and i talked to him about he's like well i went to the school del arte international it's in blue lake california which uh is about the size of the town I grew up in. It is a tiny little town in Northern California. No one would have any clue it exists. It's in Humboldt County. So you can imagine if you don't know, Humboldt County is the weed capital of the U S practically. <laughs> um, it's a very surreal environment, but I decided after uh, talking to him a number of times and actually running into him at some theater conferences, my senior year, we had lunch together once and he really outlined cause he's also a recruiter for the school. Yeah. Uh, he, he outlined like what it's like um, and all that type of stuff. And I thought if I ever go to more training after my undergrad, this is where I want to go is here. And it worked out in my life that um, a year after I graduated with my BFA, it just worked out that I applied and got in and went there and most mind blowing part of my life where uh, their whole thing at the school we call it clown school out of uh because clowning is studied there but it's it's more than a clown school it's actually a, f- a school about physical theater where it teaches it focuses the actor as creator the actor creator who is in charge of 
being their own sort of poet. You're, you're your own playwright, director, and actor all in one, and designer. So we are getting the small groups every week and we're getting assignments to like create a three to five minute piece. And this is the theme or this is the focus and stuff. And every week you are going on every Friday afternoon, you're doing a performance lab yeah. where you do everything you've created and the entire student body, uh, the, there's a master's program and the, and the one year program, all of the students, the, the master's students and the one year students and the entire faculty all go in there. They watch you do your thing, usually failing miserably and ripping you to shreds. And it is God awful and miserable, but Somewhere at the end of that, I learned for myself what I took away from it is that it is important for me to tell the type of stories that I want to tell, uh, and I want to do it with as much joy and delight, even when the subject material is darker, and I want to be a really good ensemble mate. I want to be super compassionate and there for my ensemble. and. I want to embrace the things unique about me as storyteller, which is like, I grew up in a rural North Dakota town. I'm just like, I'm folksy. I'm not like, uh, I don't have certain sensibilities that say someone who may have grown up in a city all their life have. Yeah. Um, I, I know that within this like sort of country bumpkin attitude I can sometimes have. I also though have this like, you know, emo poet who was like, my entire teenage life was like writing poetry that I refused to share with anybody until yeah. I got to be like into my late twenties, early thirties and stuff like that. And that school made me embrace all those things that I kind of hid away. And I walked out of there like, uh, I still like would try to audition. And I, I know I did a lot of hired work being like that typical, you go, you audition, you get cast. But I did most of my work was, uh, finding groups that I got along with and then getting involved with them, creating our own original work, um, devising our own work. And that was where my real passion and heart led was doing all of that. And that's kind of where I was at uh, when I met C uh, three, four years ago, whenever it was. Yeah. Uh, they were in a theater company. I got asked by the head of that theater company who was a graduate. I met uh, him Actually, when I was a student there, he showed up at a Thanksgiving meal. Uh, he just happened to be rolling through town on Thanksgiving, and there was a huge meal. And I remember, like, opening up my – there was a knock on the door. Our house was full of students for celebrating Thanksgiving. I opened the door, and, and there he was. I didn't know who he was at the time, but then, you know, cut to almost 10 years later. Uh, I'm here in Minneapolis, and we connect on Facebook. And he's like, "Hey, let's have coffee and like get to know each other one bit." And as soon as he walked in the room, I'm like, "You're the guy from Thanksgiving at Del Arte <laughs> several years ago." And he's like, "Oh my god, that's kind of embarrassing." <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, he invited me to just be an outside eye for the show that they were working at the time. Uh, so I kind of like came and assistant directed a tiny little bit. And that's where I met C for the first time. And then I eventually got into the theater company and we started working together until Transplaner happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, and that theater company. Hey y'all. It's your favorite host. And I wanted to just pop in here to say, uh, if you're enjoying the show, 
uh, and you'd like to give us some support, the best way to do that is through Patreon. Uh, I've launched the Patreon with a couple of tiers. There's a $3 tier which gives you access to the Discord and you come hang out with uh, me and the other friends inside of that uh, and just kind of talk the show, talk a bunch of different nerd stuff. And then there is a, another tier, an $8 tier, uh, where you can get early access to episodes ad-free. Um, you will also get free access to all uh, micro-RPGs that I create in the future. Yeah, so again, uh, thank you so much for listening to the show. Um, if you'd like to give additional support, that's one way to do it. Another great way to do it is just, you know, go on to whatever platform you're listening to and rate the podcast, subscribe, uh, follow, leave a review if you can. Um, those things really help gain visibility for the show, and it is always greatly appreciated. Link is in the description. Thank you so much, and back to the episode. Was all trans as well, is that correct? Yep, uh, completely all trans, uh, theater company based here in Minneapolis. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, so um, if you don't mind my asking, like when, because you talked about, you know, that teacher in your in your junior year, when did you start to transition? Uh, about five years ago, actually. Um, okay. I didn't know I was trans on an intellectual level till I was in my late 20s, which like at the time, like I was married, divorced, and then I got sober because of how spiraled out I was. Uh, and then it was literally two years-ish after getting sober over 11 years ago now that I actually realized like it clocked for me. Oh, I'm trans. Mm -hmm. um, I had a lot of dysphoria growing up. Um, but it was the late 90s and early 2000s and access to that information didn't really exist. Yeah. Uh, trans people in my childhood were like sort of oddities that you see on like Maury Povich. Uh, <laughs> they were yeah. like sort of societal outcasts. They weren't mm -hmm. looked upon favorably. So I didn't have any vocabulary to describe my transness until uh, my first relationship after my divorce at around 25 was actually with a trans woman and that's when i first like learned about what it is to be transgender and that it even exists really yeah and then you know we broke up and then a couple of years later just like i was on my i was living in la at the time i was driving on the 101 freeway about to get onto the 405 to go south to, towards santa monica and it's just like just there's a, just this light bulb in my head that's like you're trans just that is simple. Six o'clock in the morning on a drive. <laughs> yeah. It was like, you know, it wasn't any big like angel singing or anything. It was just, oh, you're trans. And I just remember, I should get back into therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Talk that out, um, which I did. And yeah. Even after therapy for two years on, on that, um, the therapist I got was like, it was one of those organizations that was like sliding scale nonprofit. So it was like, you know, I was paying like, 20 bucks for therapy which i could barely afford at the time yeah living in la but her specialty was relationships she you know she was just kind of assigned to me so she was really good when it came to talking about my relationship issues and healing from some trauma around that stuff you know still fresh off my divorce but when it came to my gender stuff she was not helpful at all yeah. she thought you know she didn't think i was trans at the end of two years and that set my my coming out back a number of years. It was actually meeting this director that 
for this theater company that I met see that uh, being around trans folks was like, oh, like it is time for me to transition. I yeah. remember actually C was there uh, where C and some other folks in the theater company were just sitting around before a rehearsal started. And I just was like looking at these all these queer, trans, wonderful, beautiful people. And I was like, it's time to transition. Like, yeah, I'm, I've, I have found now a community that will support me in my transition. And that was that was it. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I mean, it is tough. Like, I, therapists, right? It's amazing that there's that job, and I think therapy's good. But it really is like finding the right person is so difficult. Um, like, even like I I used to go when I was in college, and then I stopped for a long time. And then now, as a parent with three toddlers, and you know, I do a job that is very flexible and easy, but it's also like not very fulfilling. It's just like there's a lot of like stressors in my life and like trying to balance all that stuff. So, like, you know what? Maybe I should start doing this again. But it was like going back now as an adult, being like, yeah, okay, I'm looking for a very specific kind of person if I could find them because of of these very specific things. Um, and you know the first therapists that I had for the most part were like white, old white guys, basically. <laughs> like that's, and I, it, uh, as a marginalized person that really kind of, um, usually just doesn't, doesn't vibe very well. Uh, you don't really feel like you're being taken care of. And even in your situation, like, even though that wasn't, a, um, a man, like it's still like, it wasn't the right situation for you. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my current therapist is trans and like the, it makes such a world of difference. Like there's so much I don't need to go into heavy detail about because she just gets it immediately. And it's yeah. like, okay, yep, we acknowledge that that's part of the trans experience. And sometimes she actually calls out like transphobia that I encounter or other mm. like trans misogynies that I encounter that like I'm used to rationalizing why it isn't or like that it's okay or that it's, you know, there's times where she's like, no, like, let's take a moment, like appreciate that you're experiencing something shitty because you're a trans person, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and yeah. that's like part of my trauma is I just like, I undercut a lot of terrible things I have to go through on a sometimes daily basis. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's great having someone that really uh, resonates with you like that. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, God, that's such a, mood like <laughs> just like we're like yeah this is shit we deal with um constantly uh so yeah i totally get that uh just as a marginalized person like 100 um i yeah but i think you know on a more positive note like you know meeting c and then subsequently getting involved in transplaner um seems like i don't want to speak for you but it seems like such an amazing wonderful positive experience um before we dig too deep into that though was like, how did you get introduced to D&D &D or teach through, RPGs in general? Uh, it was through C and Connie. Uh, okay. I yeah. had never played a lick of any type of tabletop until uh, C and Connie moved here to Minneapolis. And we started up, Connie just like wanted to play D&D &D with people. And we had this like little home game. Um, and it was a few months into that, that Connie like kind of like pulled me aside and was like, hey, like I'm thinking of doing like a D&D &D podcast. And I, I would really like if you and see, and I, I've got some other people in mind, uh, wanted to do it. And, uh, through a lot of ups and downs and wild, weird curves and COVID coming in, uh, it became, you know, what transplaner is now. Yeah. 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 Which is 
now at podcast, but like in, in, in much later times in the, than the stream. Um, that's so cool. Yeah. So like, what was that like? I mean, you know, how, how long, I guess, were you playing in that home game before the stream started? And I know I've probably asked C and Connie both this question, but just <laughs> refresh my brain, please. I don't think we had more than like 12 to 16 sessions. I feel like. Okay. So, I mean, we met, we were pretty good most of the time about meeting weekly for a while, but I think I only had about three or four months worth of playing D and D before then COVID hit, which kind of canceled that game. Right. Uh, and then, yeah, then we started up. I, 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 we just rewatched for our two year anniversary, the first episode. And I just like watching, I was like, I had no idea what I was doing. I never played a, a sorcerer <laughs> before. And I'm still like pretty unsure about the mechanics. How do I do what now? Yeah. Um, what are my options? Oh, my <laughs> options are anything. Well, how do I do anything? Like, yeah. I just, I can see Erica, you know, two years ago, her brain just spinning, trying to figure everything out compared to now where I feel a lot more comfortable, particularly yeah. in like the homebrewed version of D&D that we're also doing now that yeah, it's been a journey though, but I was <laughs> very fresh uh, when we started Transplanter. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it is so fascinating to kind of like listen to that, um, transition of time like i'm even i'm not even fully caught up like i'm on um the hounds arc and arc four and and just thinking back to that first time that i watched it um has been yeah it is so fast because it was it was like a very like everybody's kind of like this is the thing we're gonna try and you know um a little bit nervous and a little bit excited but all there to just have fun and tell a great story and i think um that really resonated immediately I think, you know, between between um y'all's love for what you're doing and and um the very specific way that Connie built the world, it just seemed like, yeah, this was such a great um project, you know, and and, and very meaningful project. So I do love that. What what was your inspiration for making uh V? Because V's gone through some some maturity and, and iterations over the time but in the beginning like what was that what was that initial thought process like you know it was funny in our we had several you know most people call them session zero but we had like multiple of those mm -hmm. so it's like session negative two maybe yeah uh, <laughs> our first like get together of what became the primary cast um i had an image of a character who it's just like a rogue, but without the rogue mechanics. Like I remember when I was kind of trying to figure out a character. Um, I read the mechanics of rogue because like, I was like, this character has the heart of a rogue. Like it just seems like it should be rogue. But I read the mechanics. I was like, I hate this. Like yeah. <laughs> I hate these mechanics. And then, so I was just like, I was reading sorcerer. And I was like, and looking at like the sorcerer spells that are generally with it. I was like, you know what? I actually want to use sorcerer to play like a rogue and basically I, it's funny because i actually didn't want to be too intellectual about her i just knew a con woman uh who used magic to do all of her stuff yeah and you know i kind of famously like my my character sheet was pretty blank other than connie had like three questions for all of us that were backstory questions it's like you know, what was something that happened to you seven years ago? Something traumatic that's like hanging over the character's head. Um, and then like something about the parents. And 
So I was like, I created this moment with this character named Sievert, Wrathstone. Um, and I created, you know, I had V's mom and sort of like the fact that they grew up kind of outside of society. And then I had uh, dad is maybe a dragon. And that's where her draconic <laughs> ancestry comes from. And that was it. That was my entire character sheet. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I wrote in like, there's those boxes on the front page of a character sheet that are like flaws, personality, blah, blah, blah. I just wrote in there. She is whatever she needs to be. Yeah. That's it. Love and and in playing her, that's kind of like she's been whatever she needs to be. And in doing so, her backstory has fleshed itself out. You know, um, there, there are things that there have been moments where Connie kind of like throws some backstory at her. And then there's times where I'm like, I just improvise something. You know, in the first two to three seasons, we did a mechanic where if people donated X amount of money, we do a random uh picking of one character has to share a flashback memory. Yeah. And I fleshed out a lot of these backstory just from having been called upon to like make up a, a flashback. Yeah. And, and I just sort of did that. Oh, and also, so I put on there, V's dad is a dragon. And like literally two nights or three nights before we went live with transplanter, Connie sends us a thing. Oh, by the way, dragons are extinct and in Dake. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, uh, what about, I wrote this and they were just like, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Just dragons are extinct. That's understood, but you're fine. Just, you can keep that as your backstory and, and we'll, f and I've got ideas. I was like, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, and then of course things play out as it plays out. And, uh, you know, um, it's been a wild adventure. I just, the only thing that mattered to me was like a, someone who could talk her way or manipulate her way through anything that comes her way, you know? Yeah. Uh, several, gosh, it feels like almost every session that V finds herself walking into a situation where I, Erica, I'm like, I have no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to walk towards this guy like doing, who's being like a preacher on the side of the road <laughs> about something called the, what the chrysalis well you know what v's just gonna walk up and i'm i'm just like well you know v just wants to find out more information how is she gonna do it what's she gonna lie and pretend like she has somehow like been blessed by the chrysalis herself and be <laughs> become a prophet yep she's a prophet of the chrysalis yep uh that's her con and you know it's just <laughs> What's great is that Connie and I trust each other so much is that if I throw something unhinged, I know he's going to throw something back unhinged and yeah. he knows that he can throw something unhinged at me and I'm going to take it and make it something. And it's just been a great dynamic to like put V through the absolute ringer. You know, I think about when I think about every arc, it's like, wow, like V gets more and more traumatized the longer this campaign <laughs> it's goes. It's just like... Oh, it's yeah. her poor, poor existence. Everyone in the cast, all the audience members were, were all going through it. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's so funny. I remember the first time you started using uh, different fake names for V and Connie being like, okay, Erica, what the fuck's your fake name now? I can't keep up with it. I'm like, I don't know. You guys yeah. should have been paying attention. Right? Yeah. It's so funny. Uh, for, in the beginning of the campaign, I had a little digital sticky note just filled to the brim with V names. It was like, yeah. um, and I would forget which ones I've used or not. My, I was hoping to never use the same one twice, but like yeah. in the heat of the moment, it's just like, I don't want to sit here and just like, oh, I'll use that one. I've used that one. I've used it. Uh, and then it got, then it just got ridiculous where I'm like, Vwendy. Her name is Vwendy. <laughs> 
you know and then a character another character tries to make up fake names and just uses a variation of something v already uses but puts her first name in it and for her first letter of her name in front of it is like mictoria what <laughs> yeah that's so funny yeah yeah it's um, such a blast yeah it, it's it's you know i love that little elf uh you know uh you know, we, we we're in session or it's arc six now. And it's just like the, the longer we go, the more I'm just like this character. Is so, you know, she's trying uh, to become a better person. And it's so interesting to play that and dramatize that and make that, uh, you know, a compelling drama. Cause I, I don't think we see, we see people like being, uh, who raise up to that challenge of being the hero's calling, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And V's certainly doing that, but we're also like showing someone and, you know, it's been a couple arcs in the making, like V has screwed up a lot of ways. And Connie has sometimes held in their back pocket. Some of the things V has done in, in arc one or two. Yeah. And now suddenly there's consequences for V's actions much later. And I think it's fascinating to see someone have to actually own up and try to take responsibility. I mean, I think V in the first arc wouldn't have tried to take responsibility. I think she would mm-hmm. try to talk her way out of it or, yeah. or skirt it. And, but it's more interesting of a drama and, and showing character growth. They're like, okay, you know what? Yes, I screwed up. I mean, I, some of her reasons of why she didn't fix things yet are very valid. And then some of her reasons are just like, nah, I, I just, I just really screwed up and I have no excuse for it. Uh, but yeah. here, let me try to do the right thing now about it. Um, so it's, it's just interesting. I'm just so fascinated because I, I did not enter transplanter with some grand scheme of what I wanted to express with V other than I wanted some type of character that I could just be other characters with, you know, and I wanted a character that could be do political intrigue and criminal organization intrigue and like all of that type of stuff. So there are some arcs where V really gets to lean into like being in the seedy underbelly of the Andake society. And and that's where I like love. It's like, this is what she was built for, Yeah, you know? And then there's some arcs where she's had to like be noble and like be a good representation for the paragons and, and society and Andake. And it's like, she doesn't know how to, I mean, she, she can fake it, she, but like, she doesn't know how to be these things. She's uncomfortable with all this. She's used to not having the attention because it's easier to slip in and out when you don't have the attention on you. So it's, you know, and then like we did the one shots with our characters, backstories and V's like broke my heart. It was the first time I ever cried while doing a tabletop RPG was the ending of uh your good friend where yeah. v, you get to meet V like 50 years ago and, and see what she was like then. And some of the heartbreak she endured then. So it's, you know, Oh, that was so good. Yeah. 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 I really enjoyed that story. I think it's, it's so cool. Like one of the things that I really love is like that aspect of character growth, right? Because, um, you know, so many times in a D and D actual play, it's like, I mean, with any like D and D party, it's like, okay, well we have to be together, right? Because that's how the game works. Um, so let's all just kind of agree. And there's sometimes conflict, but a lot of times there's not any like real conflict. And I think what's so great about Transplaner's story is that there's a lot of times where the four of you are approaching a situation and being like, 
I am like, I'm dealing with it this way. Like Mania being like, I don't care what you do. I'm leaving on this ship right now. Um, and, and, you know, and the growth between the parties, uh, friendship, right. And, and like being like, Oh, well now we've introduced love interests into this and that's already complicated and messy, but now you also have these responsibilities to, to your friends who are trying to do something that they need your help with. And like, where do you go? How do you like, sometimes do you say goodbye? Like what's, you know, and, and, and listening to that play out that story play out is so, it's so amazing as like just an audience member to listen to that. Um, I think like bringing, I don't want to get like too spoiler heavy for people who have in the transplanter. Just again, if you listen to this week's episode, as of this recording, you heard me say, if you listen to my show for this song, how have you not wa- listened to transplanter? Just go do it. Um, but very brief, like not too big of a spoiler, but like when introducing these love interests, I think created such an amazing dynamic for the story because it was a, it was like the first time where we all where at least where I felt like, Oh shit. Like V's got to figure out, like, do you kind of have to be beholden to somebody and responsible? Cause even though you're in this party, like it still felt like V was kind of like a rogue, like just do whatever she wanted. And so now, now you kind of have like, well, shit, like I, I'm responsible to two different people now. That weight is kind of coming down, and and yeah, I just love it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know, intellectually, I as like theater maker, I know that I needed a reason for V to buy into being with the party. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know on a directorial sense that that needs to happen. V needs a reason, and. It, Really, it was just like V wants to travel with this party because it, they were told that this, you know, this character has more information that may be of value. And if the world is ending and if terrible things are going to be happening, V wants to know everything she can about it first so that she can maximize any type of profit she can possibly yeah. earn from it. And that got, you know, V through a lot of it, uh, the first arc especially. It just, you know, I'm, I'm just coming along just to, like, find out what's actually going on here. But things slowly kept happening, you know, little tiny moments where V would put herself in a bad situation and having other characters kind of step up for her or with her or rescue her. Um, you know, there's some characters who have literally saved V's life uh a number of times now, like where the point we're at, we're in terms of like recording stuff and that has mattered. It's funny. I've realized in the playing of V that she is transactional. Uh, I mean, in every way, like with money, with, but when it comes to like trusting others, she will not trust you until you've done something for her. You know, Mm. if there are certain characters where she has less trust because they've done less for her, there's some characters who have done a lot for her, and so she trusts them more. There's and playing that with that dynamic and feeling that, but then also seeing the growth where like that's starting to melt away a little bit more, where she's trusting someone else because this person trusts them. Like yeah. that's a huge leap for V, mm-hmm. who would never trust the word of someone else if you know it's it's a wild, incredible ride. And yeah, to have romance thrown into it. Um, I'd never done romance rp before so yeah. like yeah it's that's a wild adventure um you know connie does literally throw every possible thing at us whether it's romance danger toxic exes <laughs> yeah. uh, everything is on the play yeah. on the table and uh 
that's like the fun part and getting to like see how does V respond to these scenarios is really the best part to learn more about her. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that kind of speaks to what you're talking about earlier, like the trust uh, between you and Connie and the trust that everybody has in him, like just being able to understand like, yeah, we're going to get into some tricky situations, but there's, we're really not going to have, like, it's never going to be something that we're personally in danger of like having to deal with something that we're not ready for or prepared for, or, or that we can't stop it if we need to. And I think like, you know, just from like, how many times you've heard people say like, never split the party, but like literally one of the best moments that I've listened to so far is when the party splits up and like everybody's doing their own thing and having these individual stories. Yeah. It's just so good. And you know, and you, and you have to deal with stuff and it's like, how do you deal with this on your own as this character? I think makes for such, um, just amazing stories. Yeah. It's, it's so, so cool. I mean, so now that you've like, been a part of Transplanter for so long and um you know kind of living the story like have you had many other opportunities to play other games or other characters in other games stuff like that yeah um there have been a number of like charity one shots i've done particularly in the last year uh there's a group that kind of like maybe once every 6 months i do like a short mini series with uh, in different systems. Uh, I am not someone who's like a systems aficionado. Yeah. I've played a bunch of different systems, but like if you quizzed me like f- five days later after I played it, like what what is the system? I'm like, I don't know. I just kind of... <laughs> There's been so many times uh, playing a different system where like I learned the bare bare minimum of what I need to know. And then I trust whoever the GM slash DM is for that session to like get me through 90% of the rest of the mechanics. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, that I just sort of, you know, th- there's some sessions where I'm like, literally I've got like the PDF of the player's guide for that system right here. And I'm just like, I would like to do this. And the yeah. GM de- then describes the mechanics of how I do it, uh, which is great. Because for me, it's it's not about the mechanics ever. I you know I truly approach it all as an actor. I I constantly am thinking about what's V's objectives, what what's her perspective, how is she thinking about these things. I run every character like through a sort of a simulation of like here. Let me think about the thousand different ways this might play out, and then I won't make up my mind about any of it. I'll just mm-hmm. go ahead and let my mind, my fantasy, my imagination roll and just especially when I'm driving home to my parents in North Dakota, like it's a four and a half hour drive. That drive is like the most fruitful time because I would just run. I I just remember having a transplanter podcast on the car and like, but actually just daydreaming about V for four and a half hours. (laughs) Yeah. And then I like get to my parents. I'm like so excited. I'm like DMing people like, Oh my God, like I have so many ideas and then not doing any of them. And just like in the moment, like something happens Mm -hmm. and it's like, Maybe what V chooses to do was one of those thousand simulations, but maybe something completely different. But I think it's fruitful as an actor to like let your imagination play and think about it and have fun with it. But uh, no matter what the system is, it's it's always about the narrative and the character and the the conflict between characters and whatever the the nemesis of the of this scenario is. It's like you know, it's. I just never think about mechanics. I just trust 
that whatever bare minimum I know and, and the GM are going to like get me through yeah. a system. Do, um, do you feel like that sort of daydreaming helps you with improvisation? I think so, particularly like in the uh, sense that, I mean, I have a lot of rules in my head about like improv. I've studied a bit. My clowning training was very improv-esque. So like there's a lot going on when you improv. And I think at the end of the day, though, the thing I learned in my own acting training is that you have to give up any preconceived idea that you bring to the table for it. Mm -hmm. But you also can't come to the table empty. Either. Yeah, yeah. So it is important to allow yourself to use your imagination and and think of things. But I find actually my best RP is when I choose something that was never even a consideration uh, in my imagination. Um, but I still needed that time to like imagine and think about it and, and daydream about it because then you fill the character with more possibility and again, you don't want to come to the table empty, um, mm -hmm. uh, like in terms of emotional quality or what your headspace, your character is in. I think when you do that daydreaming, you almost kind of find like what the theme is like by doing it yeah. a thousand different ways. Like what is the actual, like what is the through line through all of this? And that helps me find out like, well, this is what V wants in this particular scenario that she's finding herself in, you know, between sessions. And I'm thinking about next session, I, I'm a daydreaming so I can find the through line of like, well, in the end, this is what she wants. So all the ideas of what I can do, it's all rooted in this desire. And then when I get to there, whatever happens is is V's desire meeting other people's desire and how they they rub up against each other how they align sometimes and you know we make up different things and then you know having really talented RPers on the other side who can take my idea and say yes and or I can take their idea and yes and like then we're building a castle together all these brick by brick yes ands until we build something that neither one of us individually could have possibly imagined yeah yeah, I definitely, I think it, it's, um, it's so key. Um, I've never taken improv, but like, I know for myself, just being a person who improvises a lot of my GMing and as a player kind of coming in that way, I do a lot of that same daydreaming. And I, I do agree, like you can't come in, like, even if it's like, oh, like of these thousand ideas, I love this specific idea. Um, because you still have to react appropriately to the situation right and so it's like you know i think just what those ideas do is just kind of give you sort of a a catalog a quick catalog for you to pick from and be like oh like i could do this one thing that i was thinking about but now because of this scene i can add on this other thing as well and make it and make it work but yeah like i a great example like i did my second one shot um I don't know why in my head, like I just created this expectation because all the people that were playing were like just really incredible role players. I was like, oh, it's going to be like a very serious game. But they just wanted to like play Pathfinder for the first time and have a ton of fun and just be chaotic. And so the game tone switched, you know, and I was just like, okay, cool, I'm going with this. And I had to change a lot of the format and just pull from different things that I had been thinking could happen um, and made it into this very like sort of fluid wildly chaotic um session that it was um but yeah i think for sure like it's you in as a player or as a gym like you really can't be rigid 
or you're probably going to end up disappointed when you, the story beat that you want doesn't happen and you just be mad. <laughs> yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot of moments where like I go into a session thinking, okay, V is going to do this. And like, this is obviously what needs to happen next. And then, you know, that's not how it plays out. And most of the time I'm pleasantly surprised by that, honestly. Yeah. And if something is like truly like a burning desire to happen, like there's also, there have been times where I've been less, um, well, now I, I've, there's been times where I've been more rigid and just sort of like, no, you know what? This is so unbelievably passionately what V wants. I'm just going to do it anyway. Like yeah. V just does it. Mm-hmm. And then Connie rolls with it and that's, and it's fine. Um, and sometimes those moments are great. Um, you know, I think there's a, a particular mo- memorable moment in uh, Arc 1, uh, Session 7. Uh, it's one of V's first really big moments in the campaign uh, where I went in there with a very strong idea of what V's going to do. And it, but it came from a, a lot of like grounded in V's experience, what's happened to her, what that particular moment was in the campaign. And mm-hmm. like, how would you or I like think what would you do if you ran into this situation being like a badass draconic sorcerer? Yeah. Well, this is what I would do. And so <laughs> that's just what V did. And, you know, I think it caught uh, Connie by surprise a little bit, but yeah. so be it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They rolled with it and it was a really memorable first like big moment for V. I feel like. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. That's, um, that's so good. I mean, it's, it really is such a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, and I'm, I'm, so, I'm so glad to be able to experience it as a fan um, and as a friend of so many of the folks now. Um, yeah, I'm just super excited. I don't know. I love it. Um, I'm excited to catch up finally, but honestly, like, I just need somebody to donate thousands of dollars to Transplanters so that we can just get all the episodes edited up to the current week so I can just listen to it on podcast because it's so much easier for me. That is oh, like yeah, the absolutely. most, like it's so hard for me to catch a stream in real life and it's so hard for me to watch a YouTube video because I need to do other things at the same time and I constantly will be like, well, that video ended because I had to turn on something else on my phone. Um so yeah, I'm just, but it's working out because I'm where I'm at now. There's plenty of, I still have a, quite a few podcast episodes to catch up on, but uh, yeah, I would just love to binge the rest of it over the next like three weeks. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking about the other day, like how many episodes we actually have. And like, if you're starting from the beginning, there is a lot of content, mm-hmm. but like also because we started pre-recording episodes like where we're at in the recording process is so far ahead of what's even yeah. like aired. Yeah. So like, there's so much information about what's happening that like, I have to just like <laughs> push out of my mind. It never happened until it happens for the public. Uh, it's, you know, which is like a great uh, step in like our evolution, right. As a podcast, mm-hmm. like we were going to simply be an audio podcast at first, yeah. but we found it was actually simpler to, to stream it on Twitch. I was like, you know, here I am as a Twitch streamer at that moment. I'm like, should we just consider maybe because we were struggling. We we did some false starts of recording just an audio podcast. And it was kind of it was a really difficult process. And yeah. so we were just like, maybe 
maybe we tried this where we all just get on a discord call and like, you know, play a session on discord and, and do it that way. And that seemed to work. It was like the great way to start. And, uh, you know, and now we're, we're, we just keep building and building and building and I'm excited. And we got like, you know, we're getting close to like a hundred episodes worth of content and <laughs> it's just, you know, we're continuing to grow and that's the exciting part. And people like, like the community of transplanter grows. That's the thing that blows my mind is that there's yeah. this beautiful community around it of people, particularly trans folks and other marginalized identities who really are digging into what the show represents to them. And, you know, that's always the part for me is like, uh, you know, I've been sober for 11 years and I kind of in my sobriety have learned that it's important for me to be a beacon in sobriety for others who may be struggling with, you know, addiction issues. Mm -hmm. And I feel the same way about like being a trans woman in the world. It's like, you know, somewhere out there, there's someone questioning their identity. And if they find my content in any way and start feeling at least some type of connection to what their gender may actually be and not what they were just told it was at birth, mm -hmm. uh, then I'm doing my job. And I feel like there's so many ways in which transplaners being that, uh, whether it's marginalized identities and tabletop, whether it's telling narratives that aren't based in sort of that Eurocentric medieval fantasy, you know, the token and, and you know, other sort of, you know, the tired tropes. Of yeah, the yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know, it's fun to be part of a exciting, you know, fresh way of, of doing D and D really. And also like we homebrew so much that like, what are the rules of D and D? I, like when I do a, yeah. an actual pure D and D session, I was like, Oh, right. 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 You know, I want my three exists. questions. I rolled a crit. Like, I, I don't understand why you're not telling me three things about this specific character. Right. Exactly. Yeah. What you mean? I don't get to like make a hard choice because I rolled like poorly. What? Yeah. You're like, I know I yeah. miss, but I should be able to get the damage still. I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. Right. I I love that though. I think that the fact that combat doesn't always happen and the fact that combat feels more dynamic because of the rule changes, I think makes uh, really um makes combat better. It's it's much more dynamic in the game. And uh and yeah, I think it's it's yeah, so much more improved. I totally get it though. Like, because I think as as a listener, I was like, wait, hang on. What's happening? You know, because you're just like, I'm somebody who's used to rules. But um, I mean, I don't know. There's so much like discourse about D&D &D versus Pathfinder. And I'm a huge Pathfinder fan right now. And I stay out of it because I just don't give a shit about comparing my opinion to the world's opinions when literally nobody's opinion is going to change based on what I say. But that said, D&D is kind of broken anyway. And the rules that were changed make it make sense and i think that that is an improvement so yeah i love it yeah and like you know honestly like i love the flexibility that connie affords us uh with spell casting i'm mm -hmm. also like we we've had so many internal conversations about like where do you go i mean in one of the first arcs there was heavy conversation about kind of like abandoning combat as D, D knows it completely and going a very there's a few episodes where we do it where accelerated combat and all this different like sort of very different flavored combat yeah but we because we created things in a D, D scope it would be hard to abandon it because then you're also like i i found for at least for myself getting to a place of like you know some of the structure of D, &D like having structure 
it's like it's like having a key in music. I'm you know I'm a huge I'm into music and having keys in music you know A major C minor whatever like this these are the notes you get to play in this yeah. key, and that for me is actually provides some level of freedom because I know these are the keys I can hit. Like mm-hmm. by being limited, it actually makes me able to express more. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's a weird balance that you know we continuously and I love being part of the conversation that we continuously are working on like where where do we and like who knows maybe next campaign we completely abandon D and go with something completely different yeah you know who knows but i i enjoy that there's a lot of flexibility i love being a spellcaster where it's like you know what i have this spell called knock is there anything else knock can do besides just like open doors like I'm, yeah. I'm kind of interested and Connie's let me do a lot of very liberally <laughs> used versions of knock on a lot of things yeah and then once in a while he's like no i'm sorry erica you cannot do <laughs> no, knock not. for that or like yeah. whatever like whatever the spell is just knock was the first easy example in my head yeah um you know <laughs> it's great I, I love that i get to flavor my spells kind of however i want and and then Connie kind of like allows it or then takes my idea and like blows it up to an even more cinematic level. It's like, yeah, I love it. Yeah. It feeds into my creativity. Yeah. <laughs> anytime, anytime we can, we can break out strict Connie that just shuts shit down. It, I love it so much just because it's like so rare and it's like out of nowhere. You're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's not happening now. I'm just going right. <laughs> to, we're just going to move on. All right. <laughs> exactly uh that's so good well awesome i mean this has been so wonderful to talk to you and i just want to say um you know thank you for sharing your stories and and it's so cool to listen to your journey into all of this and um like i said i'm you know i i obviously i'm a huge fan of the show um and what you're doing so thank you for coming on to share all that and yeah if you would like to tell people where they can find you and, and your work this is the time yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Erica New Girl, and then on Twitch, I somewhat recently accidentally changed my name to Erica Please, E R I C A P L Z, Erica Please, uh, which is an inside joke that accidentally became permanent. So, so say la vie. That, that actually sounds very much like a V Knock Scherzel story. Yeah, um, uh, but yeah, I knew actually. You know, my c- current content uh, is doing. Uh, Red Dead Redemption Online RP. So I've created a character and I live in this online server called Wild RP, filled to the brim with phenomenal RPers, uh, telling stories in the Old West. Um, and they've actually made it as like a very anti-colonialist uh, version of of the Old West. So there's no racism or slavery never was a thing, so on and so forth. It's queer people like exist in the Old West and they don't have to hide. They aren't like you know, some kind of thing. So it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. And my character, I adore. And it's you, pretty much, that's pretty much all of my streaming content right now. So if you're into watching me RPs, you can watch me RP in the old West for nine hours a day. Cause I'm a, <laughs> completely addicted to it. Right now. <laughs> awesome. Incredible. Well, very cool. Um, yeah. Thank you again. And uh, yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to reach out to us, check out the many options on the Anchor app or anchor.fm on your browser. You can also reach us at secretnerdpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show, and if you'd like, leave a review to help us grow this thing. Until next time.